Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. WYXR is supported by the On Stage at the Halloran Center 2022-2023 season, which continues in downtown Memphis. Experience live entertainment with music, magic, and more, including the return of Orchestra Unplugged and the Songwriter Series events. More information and the full lineup at orpheum-memphis.com slash onstage. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. I'm the Memphis Metropolis host. And this week, we're going to be talking about blight and some some really innovative strategies to address it in our community. And my guest is Vincent Sawyer, who's a staff attorney at The Works and is an expert on all things legal in the blight arena. So welcome to the show, Vincent. Thank you for having me. So, um... So, you know, I think I always think like a community in the community development world, kind of everybody knows everybody. But having said that, um, we've never met in person. So just tell me a little bit about, um, you know, where you're from and then also how you got interested in this particular um, specialty in the legal world. Yeah, sure. Uh, So... Went to University of, uh, well, I grew up in Memphis um, all my life. Uh, went to Germantown High University of Memphis undergrad and Charlotte Law. Um, and uh, I knew um, that I always wanted to fight, you know, to fight something. <laughs> uh, at first, uh, I wasn't quite too sure about what that fight may be, but uh, I think I've uh, landed on a, in a good field that, you know, affects everybody, uh, in our city. So before you worked, so, well, I wanted to ask you about, so you said you went to Germantown high. Did you, did you grow, were you, did you grow up in Germantown or did you grow up in a, in a, I always like to ask people what neighborhoods they grew up in. Cause I'm a uh, very interested in neighborhoods. Yeah. So, uh, I, I grew up in a lot of different areas when I went to Germantown, um, I lived in like Southeast Memphis. I probably today would have went to South Wind High. Um, But yeah, um, I've stayed in Hickory Hill, Glenview, Hyde Park, uh, you name it. Okay. (laughs) There's a new group in Hyde Park that's um, called Hyde Park Matters. They're kind of new. And um, I'm hoping to have him on, the guy who's leading up some of that work, hoping to have him on the show over the next couple of weeks. I don't know whether um, you've crossed paths with them or not, but that's a neighborhood that I'm, that I've you know, spent quite a bit of time in. So, so um, what did you do in terms of the legal profession before you started, before you were with the works? Well, this was, uh, well, I did some doc review fresh out of law school, but this was the first job beyond that. I uh, actually uh, got licensed, uh, received um, uh, my, my bar license uh, while working at the works as a law clerk. So this was, my, in fact, my first job as a lawyer. Okay. 
So, um, so just tell me a little bit about, um, I mean, the works organization does a lot of different things and, um, you know, does housing development and commercial development and homeownership. And, you know, Rashawn Austin was on not that long ago talking about the North side high project. Um, but, but, um, but the works does a lot specifically around, um, blight, you know, the issue of blight policy and advocacy. Can you just talk a little bit about that and, and, um, including the, you know, the organizing of the blight elimination steering team, just give people a little sense of, um, before we dive into, you know, receivership and other very sexy blight related topics, just talk a little bit about the different ways the, the works works in the community. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the, the works is a citywide community development corporation uh, focused on uh, primarily improving the lives of residents throughout Memphis, especially in the underserved communities. So so, yes, uh, we have uh, we're the works. We have a lot of stuff going on. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we we have various multifamily developments uh, throughout Memphis that provides hundreds of affordable housing units. Uh yeah, we have, uh, we're focused on uh, healthy eating, healthy lifestyles. Uh, we have a South Memphis farmer's market, as well as a mobile grocer that delivers healthy foods to residents that, you know, pretty much live in food deserts. Uh, we do, um, uh, we, we administer the ERA program, the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, uh, where we've put millions of dollars on the street, helps help thousands of families uh, avoid eviction. Uh, we have a uh, strategic a strategic uh, uh, code enforcement management academy uh, where we teach uh, various municipalities or we bring various municipalities on a yearly basis together to try to figure out the best, uh, best practices when it comes to uh, strategic code enforcement. Uh, it's, uh, and also we advocate for the, the policies, uh, and practices, uh, that we think would uh, help eliminate widespread, widespread blighted properties throughout Memphis. Um, one of those advocacy arms is like you mentioned, the blight elimination steering team, uh, which has, uh, been instrumental in, uh, what you alluded to earlier, uh, the creation of the Neighborhood Preservation Act where provides the receivership solutions for some of these vacant and abandoned properties in Memphis. Okay. Well, let's dive into that. Um, I mean, of course, blight is, um, when people talk about Memphis and people like to complain about it, people who live here, um, you know, blight is one of the things that bothers people the most for good reason. And I would say after you know, crime and potholes, blight is probably up there, especially in lower moderate income neighborhoods where it really impacts the quality of life. And, you know, the, you know, I would say like, you know, the late person, like my mother, you know, driving around says, you know, why doesn't someone do something about that? And, um, and of course, I think a lot of times people are thinking about the government, that it's the government's job. And, course you and i know there's not nearly enough resources to do that even if the government um you know had the resource not enough resources to fix everything up but there's just a lot of barriers 
to um, to fixing up blighted properties. And I wonder if you would just um, just you know tick some of those off. Like you're driving down the street and you see a boarded up house. It's been like that for 10 years. You live in the neighborhood. What are some of the possible reasons that that it hasn't, um, nothing has been done about it? Well, you alluded to one of the reasons, uh, capacity uh, and uh, government capacity to uh, tackle each and every uh, blighted property in Memphis. Uh, Shelby County alone, 17,000 single family um, homes uh, that have just been left vacant and abandoned. Um uh, but also, you're talking about authority, um, owners' rights. I mean, you're talking about a particular property. You can't just go on and do what you want on somebody's private property. Uh, you got to have the legal authority. And it took some time to get those uh, statutes and ordinances in place uh, to allow us uh, to 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 provide a solution to move forward on a lot of these properties who really uh, don't have anybody behind the wheel. Uh, you're talking about properties that are owned by defunct corporations. Uh, nobody's there or heirs of deceased people who live on the other side of the country want nothing to do with the blighted property in Memphis, uh, let alone have the capacity to, to do something about it if they wanted to. Uh, so, um, you know, you, you have to have the authority for one. Also, you have to have the capacity to take on um, all the, you know, blighted properties uh, in Memphis. And, you know, code enforcement, um, I think it does a, a, a great job. But we're talking about 17,000 properties right. and all um, um, response based, you know, if. Uh, definitely encourage any and everybody to use the 311 system to report um, any kind of uh, substandard property conditions to get somebody to put their eyes on it. And one thing you didn't mention, and we probably won't have time to go into this, but, um, you know, in some cases, the taxes on the properties haven't been paid in a long time. And so the, so the, the back taxes are way more than the property's worth. And certainly in, in neighborhoods where, you know, property values are inching up, that's an impediment to the private sector coming in, just buying something and fixing it up. And there are processes to, um, and we'll probably talk about some of those processes to fix that. But at, at you know, in the front end, you're like, well, this is $15,000. This boarded up house has $15,000 of back property taxes on it, which I'm going to have to pay if I acquire it. And so that's just a big barrier right there. Um, so the, so the, um, what we did, we did talk about the, um, you know, a number of years ago, um, some important legislation was passed at the state level called the Neighborhood Preservation Act which greatly gave the community more powers to collectively deal with some of these blighted properties. So can you, and and that's been amended. Um, You know, a lot of these people don't realize a lot of these kind of, you can't just do something locally. A lot of times you've got to go to state government and it's got to be a state law and then it's got to come back and it's got to be enabled locally. And so 
just these policy changes are not as easy as people think they should be. I mean, forget, and there's opposition, of course, some of the time, but just explain, you know, as clearly as you can for people who aren't familiar with, aren't attorneys or aren't familiar with it, what the Neighborhood Preservation Act does, and which is different from how it changed things for the better. Yeah, absolutely. So the Neighborhood Preservation uh, Act, uh, the NPA, uh, as amended 2018, uh, pretty much uh, it does two main things. One, it empowers the Shelby County Environmental Court uh, to uh, declare particular properties that present or pose uh, severe health and safety risks to the surrounding community. It empowers the court to declare them a public nuisance. And it also empowers the court to compel the owner of a public nuisance property to bring their property back into compliance uh, by making the necessary repairs, removing any health and safety risks, and bringing it back into a safe and habitable condition. Uh, so, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, you know, a lot of people think that um, – you know, the environmental court is too easy on property owners, gives them more time, gives them more chances. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, I'm, of course, familiar with, you know, Judge Dandridge and before, you know, um, Judge Potter before that. And they, of course, are both great people. But um, I'm digressing a little bit, but I'm sort of curious about that because you do hear that quite often. Yeah, it's a delicate balance. We're talking about, you know, the, the the health and safety of the community versus private ownership rights. And especially when you're talking about an owner that's present and in court and asking for time, uh, you know, that is a uh, it's a delicate balance. And that's why we hire or we elect uh, the person that's on the bench right now, uh, one by landslide. Uh, to make those tough calls. And I think it's really kind of a case by case basis. Uh, you know, if, 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 if a person has a plan towards providing a development plan, you know, then I would definitely err on the side of giving them the time necessary. As long as, um, you know, progress is being made, um, the, the, you know, but, and sometimes, it, 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 obviously, it comes a point where uh, it's clear that you got to pull the bandaid off. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and 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 sadly, you know, there are people who don't just don't have who just don't have the money to fix the property up, and then you're weighing their interests against the interests of the neighbors who've been looking at a blighted property for years. Absolutely, and also, you know. Um, I think that also weighs heavily on the court um, when uh, surrounding neighbors come into court to complain. If the court only hears the owner and a code enforcement um, report, uh, then the court may not get the whole picture. So I always advise that if you are affected by a property that has an NPA case against it, show up in court and express your concern. So what's t- so take me through the process of when um, when the works get involved in um, trying to help 
eradicate or try to help intervene in a blighted property that needs to be developed, sort of from the beginning up until um, what eventually we hope happens at the end. Yeah. So I'm assuming we're talking about like receivership properties, properties with NPA cases against them. Well, yeah. Yeah. So I guess we didn't talk about maybe before we go through the whole process, let's talk about receivership because receivership is what happens sometimes when an owner can't or won't fix a property and it's sort of the last resort. So just sort of define that for us. And then we'll talk about, you know, what it looks like the life cycle of a property. Yeah, so um, when a case is brought um, uh, against a, a neighborhood preservation act case is brought against a particular piece of property, first the 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 case is as what we call in rem, as opposed to in persona. Don't ring! Uh, don't make me ring my bell. <laughs> I was going to go into it. <laughs> uh, you're going to def- you're gonna have to define that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in an in rem case, the defendant is uh, the property. There is nobody personally liable or personally named a defendant in these cases. It's the property itself. Because there's, uh, there's no, that, no one owns it? Well, it's just a method of bringing cases. Uh, it's now... Uh, uh, the advantages of bringing in rem cases against these properties is that uh, you constructive notice uh, satisfies the constitutional due process requirements, uh, meaning that you post it on the house, you uh, post notice on the house, you you put a publication in the newspaper, and you serve each and every possible owner, interested party, uh, and you can proceed with the case. A lot of times, in personam, when you're when you're trying to name a specific person, you're going to have to find that specific person. And like like I said, you know, it, it may be a defunct corporation whose owner is unknown or who hasn't updated their you know service. Uh, a uh, person for a process of service, or it could be a deceased person. You might have to, you know, work out a family tree before you can find who needs to be served. Well, maybe this is, I'm getting into the weeds too much, but wh- how do you determine that something's in REM? Well, so, so it's a case that's, so it, you have a choice when you bring, uh, when you file a petition, you can either file it against the property or you can file it against a person. Uh, so uh, the in rem case is a decision uh, as opposed to it, it's you're, you're moving forward against a particular piece of property following the in rem procedures. And, and does the court have to be satisfied that you um, that you that, that's a legitimate choice? Yeah, it's a it's it's a legal choice. Absolutely. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's. This is litigation 101. Um, well, I'm not an uh, attorney, so. Yeah, yeah. It's a, no, I, I apologize. That's right. I, I'm trying to how, to how to say it. Uh, it's not so much as uh, the court being satisfied uh, with NREM or not NREM, as opposed to the court being satisfied with the notice requirements that we're giving under an NREM case. Okay. So there are requirements that have to be met and the court wants to see those requirements being met. And if so, then it is a proper lawsuit against the property. Okay. All right. 
So continue I'm on. Sorry. That's all right. No, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to. You know, envision like, you know, you do in rem, but then a property owner shows up one day. Like, how do you satisfy yourself that there is no one to come back? Oh, we don't know. We hope somebody comes back. When we file these cases, we we hope that an owner shows up. Uh, well, first of all, we don't file any cases. Uh, the works incorporated. That is. Uh, so we we uh, we help out on the receivership solution, and we'll get into that later. But the uh, when I say we, I mean the city. Oh, no, I I hear you. I I hear you. Yeah, uh, it uh they they bring cases primarily uh, against the properties, alleging that these properties are a public nuisance, and they are requesting that the court compel the owner to bring the property into compliance. Uh, so. Um, if uh, the court agrees with the city's um, determination that the property is a public nuisance, then an order of compliance is issued against any and all owners and interested parties. Uh, and that in uh, the order of compliance, um, it requires any and all owners and interested parties to bring a plan, a development plan to the court with a specific budget and timeline uh, to address the health and safety risk that the property poses. So the, the, the hope is that the owner does comply with the order of compliance or at least somebody or, you know, interested party, maybe a lien holder. We, the hope is that somebody steps up and tackles the problem. And if not, then Receivership is a possibility. And so and so what is receivership? Uh, so uh, receivership is 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 basically the appointment of a third party uh, to step into the owner's shoes. Uh, not be the owner, but to step into the owner's shoes, the same authority that the owner has to address whatever problems that the property poses on behalf of the owner. Uh, and uh, obviously it, it requires an appointment by the court uh, to do the various things that the receiver poses uh, proposes to do. Um, if code enforcement, the city, the court is satisfied with the proposed plan that the receiver presents, then the court appoints a receiver to execute that plan on behalf of the owner. And once that plan is executed, a lien is set on the property, uh, a receiver's lien, uh, created at the beginning of the uh, petition, at the beginning of the case, um, but in an undetermined amount. So once uh, the work is done, the development plan that the receiver proposed uh, is uh, completed, then the lien amount is set and the owner can pay that lien. Now let's talk about the lien. The lien includes any and all back taxes. It includes a, uh, any and all uh, expenses incurred by the receiver to bring the house back into safe and habitable condition. And it also includes a 10% fee to the receiver for the trouble, uh, a receiver's fee. And, Kind of sort of like, you know, interest on a tax sale purchase 
purchaser, okay. tax sale property purchaser. And so you combine all those numbers and you have the lien amount that the owner can pay back within 30 days and the case is over. Uh, the owner has a property that's been fully rehabbed on his behalf and the case is dismissed. If not, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I just wanted to, um, I don't want to break your train of thought, but I wanted to to reintroduce you um, to the audience. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking to Vincent Sawyer, who's an attorney with The Works. Uh, and we're talking about, about receivership um, and other strategies related to uh, getting blighted properties, you know, rehabbed or fixed up or um, improved. So, um, so Vincent, so the, so, so the, there's a lien on the property. Um, the, the owner can come, come, can come back and if they satisfy the lien. Um, and then, um, what happens if, which is probably more often the case that the owner doesn't, um, that the owner doesn't come back for a variety of reasons. Uh, so yeah, how to move forward if an owner does not comply? Yeah, yeah if the owner expresses a uh, unwillingness or uh, shows the inability to bring the property back into code compliance, uh, and the, the court uh, could issue a uh, could potentially issue, and you know, the like you uh, alluded to earlier, <laughs> the court uh, I believe is. Uh, very generous with giving owners any and all opportunities to address their properties. But there comes a point when it's uh, a determination has to be made that uh, the owner is not going to come into compliance. Uh, and um, or maybe the owner, there is nobody showing up to court or maybe the person thumbs his nose at the court and says, I'm not doing anything. And so an order of noncompliance is issued at that point, stating that the property is no longer um, uh, the owner is not in compliance uh, with the order of compliance. And uh, that triggers uh, the property to become receivership eligible. So, but my question was really after the receiver has done all their job, the lien's been placed on the property, there's no one to come back. I mean, the owner can't or won't reacquire the property to satisfy the lien. So what happens to the to the, you know, the the renovated property then. Oh, so yeah. Uh, so if the owner does not exercise its right to redeem the property, then uh, it triggers uh, a public auction uh, uh, sections of the statute. Um, it, you have to meet the judicial sales requirements uh, outlined in the Tennessee code uh, and uh, which includes uh uh, publications and notices, certified notices and publications to uh, to 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 all owners, interested parties. Uh, it provides the time, the date, the place that the auction is going to be held, and um, and it goes to the highest bidder. And go- well, I guess I just I'm thinking a lot of these properties are in lower income neighborhoods. Well, it's not where, you know, the cost of rehabbing the property could exceed the value. So um, 
and, and I want to talk in a minute. I hope you have a couple of examples of properties that you've worked on that have been through the receivership process. But um, I mean, what if nobody bids on them? I mean, that's or or can the receiver bid on them for their costs? Is that does that happen? You know, the receiver's got a certain amount of money in, and can they essentially bid their costs if there's not any other buyers? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so, if somebody does bid, though, um, then the receiver is entitled to their receiver's lien. There's no, the receiver doesn't get any a penny more than the lien that's been set. Any excess proceeds go to the owner, which includes but, which includes the. Oh yeah, I forget, that's important actually. That the owner is. If, if the property auctions and the more than the cost of rehab, the owner actually, the original owner actually gets the the benefit. I, that's important to mention here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, you, you'd be surprised how many people show up then. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just didn't get our mail until this week. <laughs> but uh, it, it, as far as your question goes, if nobody bids at the property, uh, then the property goes to the receiver in full satisfaction of the receiver's lien. Okay. So the receiver gets the property as opposed to getting the lien. And it's a risky business. Like you said, you know, sometimes the development costs can go beyond the um, the cost uh, or the value, anticipated value of the home. Uh, you, it, everything is not for receivership or at least for rehab under receivership, especially, you know, in, in, in your example where there's, you know, $25,000 worth of back taxes and the house is the last house standing on the street and every other house has been demoed and it looks like a grenade went off inside the home, then, you know, rehabbing this property is likely not the best solution. Well, in receivership, occasionally, I mean, is the properties are demoed, right? Because somebody has to. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so demos primarily occur during this through, through the city's administration uh, administrative process. Uh, so, uh, but receivership does also provide a, uh, a demolition uh, option. Uh, and uh, again, you know, uh, case by case scenario, can you uh, produce a lot that somebody wants uh, that who is willing to pay for? you know, all the back taxes, the demo cost, uh, and everything associated with the case. Uh, yeah, unlikely, probably a lot of times. So who are the receivers, these these people that are coming in to fix things? Is that t- typically a nonprofit, like a community development corporation, or some, or can it be a, a, a for-profit developer? What, what are those different scenarios? Uh, receiver, uh, yeah, anybody can petition the court to be a receiver for a particular piece of property, uh, for a t- particular uh, receivership eligible property. Um, uh, the the that's one of the court's um, uh, main well, initiatives is to increase the number of uh, the receivership pool that the court can rely on to rehab some of the homes uh, that owners uh, refuse to address. Um, and uh, as far as corporate structure, uh, pretty much anybody who has uh, the financial capacity to complete a proposed plan, but obviously the plan has to be approved by the court, by everybody has to be happy, the city, uh, code enforcement, the court, 
um, has to sign off. Uh, well, the court has to sign off on a plan um, uh, as recommended. Um, well, and the court has to uh, sign off on on a plan, and um, and and the receiver has to have one. Uh, financial capacity to complete the plan. He needs to prove that or she needs to, or it needs to prove that. And also it needs to have contractor experience. It needs to have the experience uh, to show that, uh, that, that it can complete the plan that is proposing to the court. So it's sort of a high bar. You have to have experience, access to capital. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can get that, 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 uh, I'm sure the court does want to increase the number, but I can see also, as you said, it's risky. So um, there's risk built into that process. So, so tell me about a couple of things that you properties you've worked on yourself that you feel like are success stories from a receivership perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So our first, now the works, um, we represent Tennessee Receivership Group um, that um, conducts receiverships in Memphis, uh, and uh, and one of uh, TRG's first receivership in Memphis was fourteen twenty eight Estate Drive. It was a property uh, um, on Estate Drive. And that's a C- on- the Seattle neighborhood, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, like park and estate. Okay. Yeah. Like white station yep. between white mm-hmm. station and middle. Yep. Yeah. So trying uh, to locate people. If they, yeah. Okay. And it was a property that was owned by a deceased person who had no heirs. Uh, it was a widow uh, who left uh, no heirs behind. Uh, she was a severe hoarder. Um, uh, the house, uh, she died in 2018 and, uh, the house sat vacant for a year after she died. Uh, it was a, um, it was a sight to see. It was, you could smell the property from the street. You had to swim over all the stuff that was inside the house, uh, feces from wild animals everywhere. Yeah, raccoons, uh, the works, and uh, open for casual entry. And uh, people lived on every side of the property. And that's a nice and nobody, That's a nice neighborhood. Yeah. People lived on every side of the property, some with children. And, you know, this is the type of stuff kids like. Uh, you want to go into a house and play around and, you know, all kind of just. Sounds like a public health, um, danger to public health. Absolutely. Absolutely. And nobody knew what to do. There was no solution. There was no path forward. What do you do? Um, you can't find anybody to serve anything uh, uh, because there is nobody. She had no heirs. Uh, and and so um, potentially a demo, uh, right? The city comes in and, and through its administrative process, uh, demos the house. And what is that going to cost? It's going to cost demo funds. That's this part. That's taxpayer funds. That's paying for the demo. And now you have a a lot that you, you prop that has no path forward. It's a vacant lot. It's, it's going to end up probably in the land bank. Uh, uh, no path forward. There's a demo lien against the property. T- 
potentially a tax sale. And um, and what do you do? The lot has no future. Uh, so with uh, with our receivership appointment, we were able to get the property fully rehabbed uh, into a homeowner's uh, ultimately into the hands uh, of uh, of a couple that I forget where they moved from, but it was a, a couple new to the town. Uh, they love their home. The neighbors love the fact that they have new neighbors as opposed to uh, a blighted house. And um, the court's happy, uh, property uh, fully rehab. The city's happy. They saved demo funds. They've also have a brand new property back on the tax roads, generating new income uh, for the city and county. Um, And it's a win-win for everybody. And so that was our first one. Uh, It was a great success. Uh, All the neighbors gave testimonies on camera about, you know, the change in their lives that the receivership and the environmental court um, allow for. Well, one thing you didn't, we didn't talk about, and I'm wondering if that applied here. One, one of the things when you were talking about the Neighborhood Preservation Act, which we didn't talk about, is that, um, and I think I'm getting this right, that the the act provided for the first time the ability of neighbors to actually, you know, sue property owners um, because they're suffering economically. Obviously, it's affecting your property values. And even though the owner was deceased, was that the case here? Did the did the neighbors actually bring the legal case? No. So 1428 Estate Drive, like 99% of the cases are brought by uh, the city, okay. uh, the city of Memphis. Uh, that is not a requirement, though. As you said, anybody uh, has standing. Uh, any affected person has standing to bring an NPA case against the property, uh, alleging that the property is a public nuisance. Obviously, there are some code and court requirements. Uh, well, uh, the court and the, the, the code enforcement and the court have to agree with the assessment that the property is a public nuisance before the case moves to the next stage. Uh, but anybody can bring a case uh, and re- uh, seek from the court a determination of public nuisance. Yeah, I didn't know people, I, I think a lot of people know that, that they've got, I mean, of course, you need legal assistance. Um, and so, you know, sometimes you may need to retain an attorney, but that you, the people do have that power to, um, to bring the case themselves in court if they need to, because people feel powerless. If you're, if you're near a blighted property, people just feel powerless. You know, they've, called 211 a gazillion times and code enforcement's been out. But like you said, a lot of times there's just, the properties are stuck and they're in, they're in sort of permanent limbo and it can be very frustrating. Um, So any, I have one, uh, one other question to ask you, but any other sort of success stories you want to mention? Yeah. I just wanted to kind of, kind of just hit on a, on a point you just made though. Uh, And, and, and that is, um, you know, how we you, neighbors can bring cases, right? Uh, anybody can bring a case, but the one of the main barriers, obviously, to bringing a case is litigation expenses because you're not seeking damages, you're not seeking, you know, to be made whole. You're 
you're seeking. You just want the damn property. thing fixed up. <laughs> yeah, right. It's going to take money for you to get a solution to a property you don't own. And there are a lot of people in this city that I just don't have that ability to do that. So that's one of the things that, you know, I would definitely love to see is to, you know, to see that barrier um, worked on, eliminated, <laughs> if uh, I can help it, uh, to try to get uh, uh, access to this remedy uh, to anybody who needs it. Okay. Uh, as far as other properties, um, yeah. So our second receivership property was uh, 2366 LaRose Avenue, which is at the corner of, uh, near the corner of uh, Lamar and Airways in the Bethel Grove area. Uh, it's a property that sat vacant for years, same same situation. It's always the same situation. It's uh, the property uh, was was vacant for years before the case was brought, and the case was brought, and it sat vacant for years after. And um, a receiver is appointed, T Tennessee Receivership Group, executed a plan and ultimately um, had the property fully rehabbed and in the hands of uh, homeowners uh, who are pleased with the property and neighbors who are ecstatic. And this was a house that's, you know, it was a corner lot and it just like, it, it made a world of difference for that immediate uh, section uh, of the community. Uh, it, was a, it was a huge lot. Uh, and uh, the presence of a brand new house on that corner, just, um, it brought life. And, and, a home, and a homeowner went into it. Well, uh, I'm not sure who lives into it now, uh, but I uh, I don't believe uh, it originally went to a homeowner. I'm trying to think. Uh, so I would have to look at the registered deeds. Well, that's <laughs> or, fine. I was just, you talked so, you know, enthusiastically about the house on estate. So, so last question, Vincent, um, you know, you had an article in the, you had an opinion piece in the commercial appeal not that long ago. Um, just, you know, there's sometimes criticisms of the receivership program. People sometimes feel like it's, it's runs counter to property rights. Um, of course, I don't agree with that at all. But do you want to just, you know, say a few words about sort of the main points in your column, why you think it's such an important because um, that's really what motivated me. I mean, I knew about your work at the works, obviously, but that's what motivated me to think, you know, I really want to have him on my show because um, receivership is so it's it's so important. And it's just I think I feel like it's misunderstood. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> that a lot of people say that you, you have a right to blight, right, uh, that. You know, it's my property or I can do what I want to do with it. Who cares? And uh, you can't make me do anything. It's mine. And, um, you know, it's it, it's it, at the, I think there are some serious, obvious, seriously, uh, ser obviously serious problems with that logic, especially in terms of the surrounding community. Uh, and uh, it's uh, that's a new one it, to me. The right to blight. That just is, that's counterintuitive. Yeah. And, and so. Um, I have a right to live without yeah. blight. That's my right. Yeah. 
And I always, you know, some things touch people, uh, you know, closer than others. I, I always just try to to emphasize the point uh, to, to people just to imagine living next door. Uh, I, you know, I pretty much go in all these properties who uh, are determined receivership eligible to try to figure out what's wrong with them. And, and um, it, it's, it's, it's pretty appalling. I mean, people live next door to these homes and these homes are, you know, they, they, they got, they're dangerous floors collapse, you know, kids playing in them, the, the roof can collapse. You got, uh, you know, crime is going on in there. Drugs are being stashed in there. Um, prostitution, um, you know, spent bullet shells, used prophylactics, fleas, Everything. disease, mold, and uh, rusty nails. And it's just a haven. <laughs> Uh, it's just for 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 injury. <laughs> it's just it's 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 uh it's pretty appalling uh, that you know. And there's no fence or no red yellow tapes around in the home like do not enter. These homes are just open for casual entry, and kids are in the area. And imagine that you know, and 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 and, and again. You know, a lot of these cases, the the Neighborhood Preservation Act, we're talking about, well, all of them are vacant and abandoned. We're not talking about somebody living in the property. Uh, That would be a housing case. That would be a totally different avenue for the court. Um, uh, But when we're talking about Neighborhood Preservation Act cases, we're talking about vacant and abandoned. Nobody's there. And in most times, nobody's even behind the wheel. There's not even an owner that you can pretty much ascertain. And and so so we, we're not really. So so what are we talking about? We're talking about the rights of a defunct corporation versus the rights of real Memphians who live in Memphis, pay taxes and want to live in a safe environment. Well, and even if there is an owner, I mean, it's. As we have discussed already, you know, the court is very generous in giving owners as much time as they need to, you know, set a schedule, secure resources. I mean, receivership is, it really is when nothing else is working. That's when receivership is considered, right? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like that's not something that's used all the time. It's just things, it's got to be nothing else is is available. It's the last resort. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, in a lot of steps, in a lot of time has to pass. Court has to be satisfied that there is no other path forward. And absolutely. Um, but without that solution, what do you do? Yeah, I agree. Well, Vincent, this has been fascinating to me. Hopefully our listeners thought that. And, you know, just kudos to this is not easy work. I know that um, that this is not easy work. It's, it's not, you know, sexy and it's not probably particularly lucrative as far as being a liar is involved, but it's incredibly important to the community. So thank you for what you do. 
Thank you for having me. So if you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM, my guest has been Vincent Sawyer from the Works Incorporated. We've been talking about blight and receivership. He's done a great job of explaining all of those tools. And Vincent, thanks so much for coming on the show. All right. Thank you. WYXR is supported by Shell Days Music Festival, presented by Mempho, April 21st and 22nd at Overton Park Shell. Shell Days will feature two days of music with Trampled by Turtles, Southern Avenue, Leftover Salmon, Neil Francis, Paul Thorne, and Bailey Bigger. More information at memphopresents.com. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.